0: Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Sports Law Podcast coming from Blackstone Chambers with me Nick DiMarco Casey and it's our first birthday this month. We started the podcast in June 2022 and when we did we had no idea whether anyone would listen to it but I'm delighted to say we've now had over 21,000 downloads and many of the episodes have been in the top 5% of all downloads of any podcast in the world. So. Thank you for listening. Today's episode is on the very important and this week very topical subject of discrimination and diversity in sport. And I'm joined by three great guests. Jane Purden is a director of Women in Football, the chair of the Premier Game Academy Audit Company for academies in male professional football. She's a newly appointed member of Premiership Rugby's Sporting Commission was formerly Head of Governance and Leadership at UK Sport. She's a non-practicing lawyer, now an author, and former Director of Governance at the Premier League. But she started, as she'll tell us later, I'm sure, by working for the football club she supported as a young girl, Sunderland. Sanjay Bandala is chair of the well-known campaign group, Kick It Out. After studying law, Sanjay became a successful lawyer. He went on to have a career in technology and consultancy, and i understand a stand-up comedian as well before his current role as chair of kick it out tom mountford's a barrister here at blackstone chambers with a successful practice across a range of areas including commercial litigation employment human rights and of course sport where he's ranked as one of the leading junior barristers in the sector so I'm sure everyone sitting around this table, and hopefully most of our listeners, will all agree with the general proposition that discrimination is a bad thing and diversity is a good thing. But can I just ask this first question that some people do ask? What's it got to do with sport? You often hear people complain you should keep politics out of sport or what some people now refer to as wokeism out of sport. What what do you say to them, Jane?
1: Well I start with sport is a human right and everybody has the right to play the sport of their choice and everybody has the right to reach the the level according to their ability in the sport of their choice and in the role of their choice because I think we should talk about working in sport not just playing sport. Now we know that for historical reasons access to sports hasn't been equal for all groups of the population and still isn't and I know Sanjay and I could talk for a long time about the work that we still need to do and in fact certainly the last five or so years of my career have largely been devoted to opening up football um, to, to women and to girls and Great strides are being made in that, not just by women in football, by others as well. But we still have a long way to go. And if we're to think about politics should be kept out of sport, we might then ask why politicians and governments get very involved in sport. And in this country, we have an awful lot of public money, both tax money and lottery money, in my view, quite rightly, being channelled into sport to achieve various outcomes, one of which is health outcomes for the the general health of the nation. And a lot of that public money is spent on encouraging people to play sport. I'm thinking about campaigns like This Girl Can, and making sure there are the facilities to ensure that they can do so. So sport is absolutely political in one sense. Um, The discrimination issue, it has existed, it continues to exist and we continue to have a lot of work to do to to deliver on that wonderful concept that I started with, and I'm sure we'd all agree with, that sport is a human right.
2: Can I just come in on that, sport? (laughs) The, The kind of people who say you need to keep politics out of sport, they don't mean you need to keep politics out of sport, they mean... We need to keep your politics out of sport because <laughs> yes. my politics are absolutely fine. The kind of people who say we should ban taking the knee are very, very happy with the poppy. But for some people the poppy is political, right? And so and, and look at what is international sport. What is an international football tournament? It is geopolitical blocks competing against each other, wearing their national colours, under the national flag with national anthems. It's war by proxy. Of course. Yeah, like the idea that you can take politics as out of sport is like saying I can take the egg out of the cake. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Politics and sport, because politics and everyday life, are inextricably linked.
0: Yes. Uh, I, in fact, I, I couldn't agree more with both of what you said. And I, I wrote an article recently just about that topic of politics and sport. And of course... Uh, governments, whether some people complaining about sports washing in, in, in the Middle East, but it doesn't matter if it's a, the British government um, putting forward positive images of the NHS through the Olympics. That Sports always been used by different governments and political regimes um, to, to share their views on things, hasn't it?
1: Well, I think about some of the major sporting events that have happened in this country over the past decade or so. And of course, with my interests, I default to the Women's Euros last summer. That took huge political will to get that held in this country and great political support. And as I talk about in the book, one of the reasons why governments love those major sporting events is that because they can deliver good health outcomes in the country at large, but they can also build soft power. And what is the difference between soft power and, and sports washing well, I, that's something we can perhaps <laughs>
0: it depends ponder where you for you live, the ages. <laughs> yes. I, I, I want to turn to racism in football now and the, and the Kick It Out campaign, because um, that's the first time I remember uh, seeing positive campaigning about discrimination at football matches. Sanjay, I think Kick It Out started back in 1993. Can you tell us what the challenges you've faced and, and what progress has been made since then?
2: Yeah, sure. And, uh, I've been I've been at Kick It Out for it will be four years in September, um, so I wasn't around for the first twenty six years, but I've been a fan for fifty, so I, I I remember it being born. And you're right, our thirtieth anniversary is in August this year. August nine, we started in August nineteen ninety three, uh, and, and actually we'll have a whole bunch of sort of celebration events for the, the through, throughout the thirtieth anniversary season next season. Um, yeah i mean the world was a slightly different place in 1993 and so the origins of kick it out were you know it started as a let's kick racism out of football so it was purely a campaign and it was really you know it started with racism on the terraces aimed towards players right that was the that was the the kicker for the creation of the campaign now over the course of 30 years football has changed society has changed politics has changed So one of the first things I did when I came in was I did a sort of strategy review and I went and did a listening tour and said, well, actually, if you were to start this organization now with with a blank piece of paper, well, you wouldn't start from here and you wouldn't start with what we have because the nature of any organization that's over 25 years old is it becomes a bit of an amalgam of lots of different initiatives that have been started. So what would we do strategically? And, And, you know, it had evolved into something that, is beyond a campaign and more into sort of service delivery and trying to deliver equality outcomes for football. So the product of that strategic review was actually we, the first thing he did was to get the trustees together and say, "Who are our beneficiaries?" You know, I'm a lawyer, so it's a trust. So who do we act for? Uh, and I said, "Well, we don't need to do that. We need to talk about our program." So we're right. If you're that if you're that sure, eight of us, each of you, write down who you think our beneficiaries are and I bet you there'll be no overlap. And there's very, very little overlap. You know, Do we act for black footballers? Do we act for black fans? Do we act for, are we an anti-racism charity? So what is the outcome of all that? Because football is already so engaged in campaigning through things like um, the No Room for Racism and the Together campaigns and other campaigns that other organizations have done. Actually, the feature of what we do is that we're in an ecosystem it's a distributed power network football with 92 football clubs and 50 county football associations and the governing bodies. That's where the power is. That's where change is going to happen. So if we're doing our job well, we we're actually we should almost on on any initiative we should make ourselves redundant because as soon as the clubs adopt it, then we need to go on to the next thing at the cutting edge. So now we say, what do, what is it we do? Uh, our, our vision is to make football a game where everyone feels that they belong, uh, uh, and and. Uh, or rather that's our mission uh, our vision is to bring football together use it ourselves as a convenient power and we we deliver across three uh, three strands voice skills and talent on behalf of our beneficiaries who are underrepresented or minority communities in football so that includes the LGBT community includes women although I think women in football have been doing you know a much better job than we have and we partner with with women in football one of the Jane was one of the people that I met in my, in my listening tour to say how can we use our platform much better to, to, to help women in football and how can we use our platform better to work better with other organisations. So in voice, we try to be a voice for underrepresented communities, a lot of campaigning we do. We spend a lot of work around the online safety bill, the stuff we're doing with the football white paper and regulation, how equality, diversity, inclusion is baked into that. Skills, so we do education, everything from uh, we've launched an online academy uh, to get to create resources for anything from a grassroots club through to league two league one up to the up to the premier League. We do education of of kids in the academy and their parents on identifying discrimination. We do a fan rehab uh, education program which is, is is getting a lot of attention at the moment, so we if someone commits an act of discrimination, you can 't ban your way out of these things completely. If someone is amenable to uh, sort of rehabilitation and restorative justice, we will do an education course with them. We've done 151 of those, I think, in the last two to three years. We think one recidivist out of 150, one that we know about as a recidivist. And then finally is talent, is how we get new talent from underrepresented minority communities working in football off the pitch. So uh, that's really around our Raise Your Game program, a big mentoring scheme, we just had an event at the Arsenal. So, you know, we, we'll start with Vincent Company doing a presentation and, and then Vinnie Venkatesh, the CEO of Arsenal. But then you're off doing 15-minute mentoring. You could have Clive Tilsley or Henry Winter or Carrie Brown or Reshmin Chowdhury or, or a coach or a referee. Actually, to try and inspire people, we had 400 kids coming to that event. This is how you get into as an entry point into the industry. So it's around those three things: voice, skills, talent.
3: Can I just come in on that fan rehab point? Because we we started this podcast talking about, uh, you know, this idea of wokeism in sport, and it was making me think that actually, often with different kinds of discrimination, you get the the largest sort of blowback when people are experiencing a degree of churn in their own belief systems yeah. they're having an internal degree of challenge um, and that can create a sort of reaction against while they're processing you know challenges to existing ideas and obviously a lot of forms of discrimination are structural we all inherit some of those ideas and I'm really interested in that fan rehab thing that actually some of the people who are committing these acts of discrimination racism actually as you're saying when you do these fan rehab work they're incredibly responsive to it and I just wondered what you what you thought about that are these people who are already in a way going through some kind of process
2: possibly I think part part of the challenge also is we all we all have we all have stereotypes in our head and so when we think of discrimination actually the stereotype in our head is that this is some career fascist right whereas actually the truth is often more mundane if you look at all antisocial behavior in and around a football ground right you know, which why I'm really interested in root causes. We run a, we we also have a, a, com, a com complaints app. You know, so you can run a complaint through the app, and we get about five or six hundred of those complaints every year from grassroots football up to the professional game. Actually, you know, the, the 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 answer to discrimination in the ground might be taking the toilet seats after the men's toilets. Right? Why is that? Because cocaine and alcohol are the biggest causes of antisocial behavior inside and around football grounds and the massive rise in the use of cocaine as a leisure drug by football supporters. We had this in nightclubs in the early 1990s and what they did was start putting Vaseline on surfaces, putting corrugated surfaces, taking flat surfaces off so people couldn't be snorting coke. Actually, sometimes it's those things and those are the reasons and people are behaving out of character or in a really amplified way. Or sometimes it's because someone just didn't know what they did was wrong. So we would had, you know, there was a high profile incident when someone did some some online abuse during lockdown of Wilfred Zahar, causes a massive Twitter sort of pitchfork mob to form because it assumes that it's some career fascist. It was a 15 year old kid who was possibly on the autism spectrum, didn't realise what he was doing was wrong. And this is the reality of the world in which we live rather than the kind of, you know, tropes and stereotypes that it's easy to fall into. So we try and ground ourselves in the real world of the real people that we're dealing with.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, Jane, I want to move on to, to women's football uh, now. You, you've, you've been pioneering this area for, for years and you mentioned you just had a book in fact, the homecoming, the Lionesses and beyond, uh, which celebrates England's victory in the UEFA Women's Championship 2022 and, of course, is available in all good bookshops and (laughs) online, I'm sure. Jane may even sign one for you if you ask her nicely. But I, I read when I was reading up about that, that way back in 1992, you wrote this, the England women's team winning the European Championship Now, that is not a fairy tale. It could just happen. And, of course, it has happened. Um, Tell us about that journey.
1: Yeah, so um, a couple of kind of critical steps along my football journey, having been a fan as a girl, were in 1985, I was lucky enough to win an English-speaking union scholarship to study at an American, what they call a prep school, we would call a public school, um, mixed. And in 1985, I was astonished, Nick, because... The effect of Title IX, this landmark piece of American legislation which mandated federal funding equally into men's and women's sports in all federal programmes, the effect of that was that in 1985 every girls' high school had, or every high school, mixed high school and girls' high school, had a girls' soccer team and I was blown away. Mm -hmm. I kind of came back and that year started um at university and promptly set up my college's first ever football team ever in its 600 year history and um, the college was founded by a woman I, I like to think she would have approved but you know we go on and by this time you know by the time the sort of early 90s come along i'm both a fan and a player and a little bit of an activist and i set up something called born kicking which i look back now and i'm pretty sure it was the first fanzine or thing ever for, for women in football, both as players and as supporters of the men's game. It ran for four issues and um, it was pretty scrappy. I'm rather embarrassed about a lot of it now. And the, you know, I wrote some real nonsense. But I also wrote some things which, when I reread it for, for the purpose of writing the book, made me go, whoa. And this was one of them because around that time, I started going to watch the England women's football team um, and it had players at that time like Marianne Spacey, Jill Coulthard, Hope Powell, Kerry Davis, just brilliant players. And I knew I was watching outstanding football and I couldn't get it. I was like, why is the country, Why? why aren't the politicians, we open talking about politicians, backing this? Because it's brilliant. And it took another... 10-15 years before the FA started doing that. But but I was crystal clear at the time. I thought I'm watching good football, I'm watching a wonderful spectacle. I, I take off my feminist goggles here and just as a football fan, know I'm watching good football. Anyone who loves football would come and watch this and be thoroughly entertained. Mm-hmm. They are skillful, they are strong, they play, you know, disciplined in a disciplined way as a team. This this team could go far. Um so I was pretty I was pretty clear in my view. And and actually, I think the England women's team, like like all teams, it's kind of had peaks and troughs in the intervening 30 years. But I started to take my other half in 2011. We went to the Women's World Cup in 2011 um, because he he I took him to a game in this country and he just went, they're, they're bloody good. Now, I, I know they are. You know, the, he said they're the best uh, team in an england shirt i've seen in 20 years so i've known for decades they've been good yes. and this was always possible
0: yes um we, we've seen a fantastic rise recently but there are still some who say um i'm, I'm putting the, the other voice across today there's still some who say well you know there's there's just not the money in women's yep. football and even that european championship was sort of heavily subsidized yeah um, Premier League clubs, women's teams are very subsidised yep. and so on. Uh, how's that going to change? Yep. Well, what are the challenges there?
1: Yeah, I, and they're right. Women, women's football still doesn't wash its face, and we know that it's still in its investment phase. And I believe you know that that's not for everyone. No one should feel compelled to invest in women's football if they don't want to. It's up for, to those of us who care to make the investment case. And 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 listen, as we've just rehearsed, I think I seem to have this kind of mystic. Me- megability 30 years ago I said this lot could win it (laughs) so so I'm going to confidently predict we this thing is going to be huge we haven't even scratched the surface of how big women's football is is going to be we're an advanced so-called and wealthy so-called football nation and we know that we're only at the beginnings here imagine this thing going kind of worldwide so to answer your question what do we need to do I'm Again, crystal clear, before we do anything, we have to centre the player. Just this week, we've seen Alessia Russo talk about some of the struggles she's had with body image. And this echoes a report by some academics which came out a year ago, reporting some mental health issues and some kind of eating disorder symptoms among elite players. I don't know if this happens in the men's game. I don't know how much of this is uniquely female or it's a sort of nuanced female with the, the eating disorders aspect but I'm pretty clear it must not happen. Then we need to grow it and we do need to grow the game. We do need to encourage investment. I personally believe growth must be sustainable and we must set a, a, a kind of, there must become a moment where this this thing is sustainable in its own terms. So it is, uh, creating enough revenue um, for it to kind of lack some of the subsidy and then that will happen you know we've we've seen Arsenal say their long-term plan is to play all the women's team's games at the Emirates they've got a huge lot of logistical stuff to overcome to make that happen other teams I know are looking at stadiums stadiums I think are key just as they were key to the launch and success of the Premier League um, and we might need to rebuild a whole raft of new stadiums. We might need to... The thing I heard um, a couple of weeks ago which, which made me go, ooh, is you can just get second pitches and roll them in and out of the existing stadiums. That might be the answer. Um, we've got to invest in the talent uh, both at the academy level and that's happening. The FA are doing a lot of work there, backed by money from the Premier League. Um, we got to attract world-class talent into our women's super league very much the model of the premier league and um, we've got to make it a great fan experience which again is partly about the stadiums partly about the football on display so a whole ton of work to do um, but i think we're going to get there. i think there's every reason to be not just hopeful about women's football but, but absolutely joyous about it because it is so exciting it really is
3: jane can i ask um we've obviously had Very recently, the report of the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket. And one of the things that I I found interesting, and no doubt we'll talk more about this report later in this podcast, is their recommendation about equalization of pay between men's and women's cricketers. And they've got a recommendation for equalization to a 50 percent level by 2025, 75 percent by 2027 and 100 percent by 2029 both looking at average pay and prize money. Um, I just wondered what your thoughts were about that as an approach. And
1: In football? Yeah,
3: you know, and more generally in yeah, sport.
1: I, um, again, feminist goggles on. Part of me wants to go, men, you're not relevant here. Why are you always the comparator? <laughs> <You know? laughs> when we take the field of play, we're playing against other women. We're not playing against men. But So th- th- I think there are more interesting economic questions about women's football. Um, which is obviously the sport I know well. I think at national team level, uh, there is a case for equal pay, um, but I think that part of the answer to this is that that salaries should reflect revenues. And, and no one, no one in women's football is asking for the top players to be paid at the same level as the top Premier League players because the revenues our game raises. On anywhere similar to that, I think it's more important to to focus on growth, as I've outlined, um, sustainable growth. Um, but I think we're going to, I think we are going to see a day where top women, sports, sports women, in our top professional sports, are going to become very wealthy. It's going to happen. But what the men are earning, who cares, frankly?
0: And I think also <laughs> the, an interesting. I, I think there's sort of growth from the bottom upwards rather than sort of do it the other way around. It was interesting, one thing you said, you said for me, though, uh, was the point about, I forget the, the section it's called in the United States, but it was legislation by the sound of it. It was the role of the law yeah. that actually helped the growth of women's football. Um, and uh, I'm turning to you, Tom, on on another topic, which is that we've seen more recently campaigning in about homophobia, and I'm afraid I'm old enough now to remember um, when I used to challenge homophobia on the terraces at football about 20 years ago, being a pretty isolated voice and also finding it difficult to raise this issue with players 20 years ago. It's completely different landscape now. Of course, it's still a problem, but it's a very, very different landscape. I've, I've had cases, for example, Uh, Recently, where I've been defending football players who have been accused of a homophobic tweet or something like that, and they've said, "You know, the last thing I would ever want to do is something homophobic," and they've been really offended at the idea that they might be homophobic, which isn't something I would have experienced twenty years ago. So I think even there we've seen a change in terms of that whole area. What role does the law play, or is it just campaigning, or is it social change? What? Why have we seen that change and what more needs to be done?
3: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, your, your experience on the on the stands uh, resonates with me. Um, you know, when I was growing up, uh, I didn't want to come out at school uh, as gay until I was in the sixth form. And a big part of that was I, I wanted to get past compulsory PE. I had this, uh, this fear of, you know, being the boy... You know, the only gay boy out in my school in the showers. will the other boys think that I'm looking at them. You know, it was it was a total psychological block, yeah. and I, I wasn't going to come out until I, I got past that. And I think, you know, sadly, a lot of uh, for a lot of LGBT people, their first experience of sport, you know, in the school's context wasn't wasn't very um, positive, and their experience in uh, other contexts, whether that's in the stands at a football match or others, weren't very positive. So I think we have to start with an acknowledgement of the problem. Um, I think that there's a a difference between the domestic and the international landscape. So, starting with the domestic landscape, uh, in the UK we've largely passed the big period of law reform, certainly as it relates to sexual orientation, less so as it relates to gender identity. And there was a big period of time, equalisation of... Age of consent, uh, Gender Recognition Act in two thousand four, same sex marriage in twenty fourteen, where well, those things were working very much in parallel, the campaigning and the legislative reform. I think we've we've largely con- con- concluded the process of legislative reform, but it shows that that having those laws on the books, having laws like the Equality Act on the books, they are good legal frameworks, but they're not uh, sufficient in themselves. It's a it's about the application and about having the the will uh, within. relevant bodies sports bodies to actually actively educate actively enforce uh, and and actively promote a healthy and inclusive culture Um, I think at the level of international sport uh, there's a very different calculus Uh, we we currently still have a situation where 66 countries around the world criminalize consensual same-sex sexual activity between adults and, um, I mean, I argued in a piece for Law and Sport last year that the UK's approach to uh, the World Cup in Qatar and its travel guidance just showed the sort of blind spot we have about um, the difficulties of participation internationally. UK government said, well, yes, uh, um, same-sex sex is is criminalized in qatar but uh you know we don't see any issue with lgbt fans traveling to qatar we've got assurances from uh, qatar that it'll be welcoming for everyone and you say well how can how can you be telling lgbt football fans that because you've got some written water assurance from the qataris that they'll be safe when uh, qatari law has not been suspended they haven't changed the law and uh, as we know in these situations abroad often it depends upon, th- people can be blackmailed, all kinds of things can happen, even if um, the state authorities themselves don't want to bring a case, um, private citizens can as well. So uh, I think that there is there needs to be a, a recognition that globally the legal framework is quite hostile for a lot of LGBT plus people, and sports campaigning work needs to, at that level, be focused both on the legislative reform that needs to happen and also on the cultural reform. And I think that the the way in which you can see the the sort of symbiotic nature of those processes is is a, um, a look at the difference in approach between some of our domestic sports governing bodies and regulators here who... Um, often take a more sensitive and informed approach and some of the uh, global sports regulators who uh, really have been behind the curve in terms of what they're doing on LGBT plus issues. Um, I think things like, uh, you know, we, we saw recently the the Mexico-US uh, homophobic chanting um, uh, uh, at a recent game. Uh, I think there's a there's a question of how far are you going to go to, to to sanction this are you going to um are you just going to stop games slightly early are you going to make games be played in empty stadiums are you going to say you know you're not going to host a world cup you're not going to host a big international competition are you going to really apply the levers that you can apply to signal at an international level the unacceptability of the kind of conduct which you were talking about 20 years ago in the stands, Nick. And as we saw from the Mexico-US news this week, you know, it's still happening in other parts of the world. Mm. Okay, well, I want to return to some of these subjects in a moment,
0: but if we just change gear for a second um, and deal with a a part of the podcast we do in every episode because so many of our listeners find it useful, and that's... um, to go through your own personal stories of how you ended up doing the, the fascinating, high-profile jobs in in sport, law, and campaigning that you're now doing. So, Sanjay, start with you.
2: OK, I'll give you the whistle-stop biography. Um, comprehensive school in Wolverhampton to my O-levels, 16. Scholarship to my local grammar school in Wolverhampton uh, to my A-levels. Fourth-term entry exam. Went to Cambridge, read law, come to work in the city, trained and qualified at Herbert Smith Freehills, just Herbert Smith in those days, uh, known as the Manchester United of Litigation when that was a compliment. <laughs> um, uh, and I practiced fraud, white collar crime asset tracing, uh, cut my teeth on the collapse of BCCI in the early 1990s, quite a lot of SFO investigations. Roll forward, I don't, I was a, went to Baker McKenzie, I, uh, was one of the founders of the Commercial Litigators Forum uh, in the early noughties when there was this rise in electronic evidence and the rise in a- electronic communications as the default form of business communication. Noticed that our discovery rules really were analogue, not built for the digital world. So being an interfering busybody, uh, made some suggestions as to what the court rule should be, and you know, a lot of those suggestions ended up being in, in, uh, in the white book. Uh, And so then I flipped into the technology side. And so I was at KPMG and then at EY for about 13, 14 years as a partner. So starting off building e-discovery businesses, really quite a good business case. Uh, I can help my clients to comply with rules that I had a part in drafting. That's pretty pretty good, pretty good business case. Um, And then I sort of moved into, uh, built a financial services investigations business, sort of five to 50 million in two years and sort of, ran a sales team and then it ended at EY being chief innovation officer for a couple of parts of practice how we use disruptive technology to deliver new services to clients Uh, I've always had side hustles so right from early days doing I've been on the London pro bono panel representing prisons on death row in Trinidad we had a big case with Keir Starmer which I've spoken about with with him since which went all the way to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights still being used today I think we had 56 uh, defendants commuted to life. Um, uh, did some stand-up comedy. Uh, EY, my my side also was doing. I uh, was a race strategy lead for our uh, seventeen and a half thousand people nationally. And reached uh, off the back of that, I ran I I ran our involvement in the Parker Review on ethnicity on UK boards, uh, which reported in twenty sixteen. Off the back of that, I was appointed by the Premier League as an equality standard panelist for its first Premier League equality standard. So when it came to four or five years ago and I said, I've had enough of private practice, um, uh, I want to go and do a portfolio career. I wanted sport to be a part of it. I'd come across Kick It Out from when we were working with the Premier League uh, and they were looking for a new chair and someone asked me to apply. So I did and I got the role. And, and now I have a portfolio. I do some things in law. I'm on the board of the Serious Fraud Office. Uh, I'm on the board of Travis Smith. Uh, I do some things in technology, either consulting. I'm also chair of a The Satellite Applications Catapult is basically an innovation incubator for the UK space technology industry. We're trying to incubate a £40 billion economy in the UK. Uh, And then I have a sports portfolio, which is Kick It Out, Uh, on the board of Greater Sport, which is the local active partnership in Manchester, trying to get 2 million people active in Manchester. And then a governing body. I'm on the board of the Lawn Tennis Association. So I have quite a busy diary
0: very busy uh, they're fascinating doing so many different things and what what is it that um if there is anything i mean what what brings them together or what what is it about you that makes you enjoy doing these different things yeah I,
2: i'd always wanted to be a renaissance hero uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I don't know i've always wanted to be a polymath and i have set, i'm settling for polycurious
3: <laughs> <laughs> excellent some. um well i'm also a comprehensive schoolboy. boy uh, grew up in newbury in berkshire um a- as with many barristers uh was you know early on identified by my my friends as good at arguing about things so <laughs> suggested to be a barrister from an early stage i um i went to do a history degree at oxford um and around the edges of that both before i went up to oxford Um, in the summer holidays and afterwards, um, I spent some time in China. I did a year studying Chinese at um, Peking University in Beijing and also worked for the European Commission, um, their embassy in Beijing, in 2009, uh, back to 2006, 2007. Um, And I had sort of experience there of of what it would be like to be a diplomat working in an embassy and found it all very interesting to be incredibly well-informed about Interesting things that were going on, but I felt that there was something sort of intangible about the work. You know, you'd get to the end of the year and you couldn't really point to anything you'd done, other than just be very well informed at all times and ready to give a report back to Brussels or London. So, I came back from China thinking I was set on a career at the bar. Um, did the GDL at City, uh, my pupillage here, and. Um, I sort of kept that connection with China a little bit, and I I went in between finishing bar school and starting my pupilage here at Blackstone. I got a, a grant from the Inner Temple to. Go to China and write a survey on how Chinese law applied to LGBT people, and we worked together with a couple of different um, NGOs, um, a lesbian group uh, called Common Language, and a group that did a lot of HIV and AIDS work, but also a sort of under the radar LGBT um, legal reform work, and we wrote the first ever survey, working together with them and with the Swedish embassy and the British embassy of um, how Chinese law applies to LGBT people published it in English and Chinese and it was, it was a very important experience for me as a lawyer because uh, while we were there to experience see some of the problems that activists had in the country so one of the organizations we worked with they they couldn't get registered as an NGO under the NGO law because you had to have a ministry a government ministry to sponsor you that uh, they couldn't register as a company so they to try and raise money they did this thing where they would sell a badge and you'd get their magazine or pamphlet with the badge. And uh, this came to the government's attention. And so they raided the offices of this charity, some other organizations. So I was sitting in one of the organization's offices um, uh, and the word came out, oh, we're being raided, we have to get all of the material out. Uh, and I thought, wow, you know, I mean, the worst that's going to happen to me is I get deported, um, you know, for the people who are here there may be worse consequences, but still that feeling of precariousness and, you know, actually I don't really want to be arrested and deported. It was quite a sort of powerful um, experience for me, realising what activists, human rights activists in, in other countries, um, and in some cases here, um, have experienced. So I, I came to Blackstone um, with a desire to build a sort of mixed practice across sport, human rights, commercial, employment, work. Um, I think, as with many barristers, if you have a magpie mind and you're happy to be one day investigating why a shipment of bananas prematurely ripened halfway across the Atlantic and turned up in Rotterdam as a, a sludge, whether it was because you know they were pre-infected with a disease or someone failed to maintain the refrigeration on the ship, and then the next day you know delving into the, the, the internal politics of a company for an employment case and then doing an interesting issue of uh, public policy Um, then, you know, it's a great job. So um, I've been doing it ever since and um, enjoyed it. So the variety is something you enjoy. Yeah, I think, yeah, if if you have a magpie mind, I don't think you'll ever be bored being a barrister. That's one of the reasons I like this podcast, because
0: I've known Tom for years and even been out drinking with him on occasion, and I didn't know half of that about him. So (laughs) thank you, Tom. Jane?
1: Yeah, so my degree was in English, did the law conversion course, and then... Uh, had a fairly conventional first few years at city law firms, one of which was Herbert Smith actually oh, gosh. We should compare notes about that <laughs> um but I found after about five years of it and apologies to any listeners like slogging away at city law firms I found city law to be a very unique combination of work that was both extremely stressful and extremely boring Honestly, it did, and I thought it's not for me long term, you know, I got to a jumping off point where I thought, well, I've got to get my head down and go for partnership or I've got to go and find a better way to lead my life and earn a living. And I actually joined the government legal service and I actually prosecuted drug smugglers, which I loved Um and you asked, Nick, about common themes, and one of the common themes through my legal career has been public service. Mm. And I believe all of it, including at the football club, which I'll come on to, and at the Premier League, has, there's been a public service element. Um, and I was very happy, and then as I describe in the book, one day a friend rang me up and just said, Sunderland Football Club are looking for a club secretary, someone with legal background, you should apply. To which I replied, I prosecute drug smugglers, you know, show, show me the, <laughs> show me my pitch because I'm not seeing it. But, but she was great. She, she just nagged me to apply. And this was back in 2001. I think now I'd be up against people who'd done sports law master's degrees, uh, had two or three years, solid experience in a sports law firm. But anyway, I got the job. Um, I did four years at Sunderland. Then I moved to the Premier League and 10 years there, rising to become Director of Governance. And, the, at the Premier League, I looked after the uh, regulatory side. It was both enforcing the regulations, you know, the transfer system, but also designing or helping design new policy. Um, so things like the owners and directors test, cost controls, and, and the perhaps the achievement I'm most proud of, drafting the youth development rules, which gave effect to the e. the elite Player performance plan. For those who don't know what that is, that was the blueprint, now 11 years old, to completely redesign how English football produces elite players. And when I was writing the youth development rules, I had this experience which I think is unique to lawyers. And, And if any of you have ever had it, tell me. I had to start with a blank piece of paper. There was literally no precedent. No one in the world, in the world, had done this. Um, so I really enjoyed that, and, and one of the things that made me realise was that I have a creative side, which, again, Lord doesn't always call on. So I promptly went and developed this sort of other life and did some creative writing courses, culminating in a Master in Fine Arts and Creative Writing, which I finished last year and then wrote the book, um, which we've talked about. Um, anyway, I, to continue the career story... After ten years at the Premier League, I took a kind of sideways move to to UK sport. To I needed to freshen myself up. Nick, um, the the Premier League was was great, but I I needed a new challenge. Um, got there, and uh, we promptly decided to write the code for sports governance. So that was another big, huge think piece and drafting piece. Very proud of that. We didn't get everything right, and there's been some amendments and changes to it since. Which of course must happen this it's something which must evolve but it's still one of the things in my career I'm most proud of and then in 2018 the opportunity came up to join women in football as their first ever CEO and I, I kind of bit the hand off and at women in football yes we do some work in women's football but actually one of for many years our sort of primary um, mission was about women working in the game and the enormous football workforce which I think on some limited evidence so don't quote me too hard on this is about 100,000 people in the UK and I think that's
0: working in football generally
1: yeah yeah and um, that's based on something the Premier League said uh, in a, an impact study they released pre-COVID in 2019 they said from memory I think they said they support 100,000 jobs in the UK and I think anecdotally just from the evidence in my own eyes and a couple of decades of working in football somewhere between 20 and 40,000 people have of those people will be women so english football cannot exist without its female workforce Um, but as we touched on with ethnicity women are underrepresented in leadership um, on boards and in pitch side roles so we worked super hard to uh to turn that around and and again it was wonderful to work for an organization with a very clear mission and working across football um very much Partnering with football, we we our, our stance has been if something goes wrong and we see that happen in a club, rather than just run to the media and start shouting about it, and we we will do that if we have to, we will do that if we have to, but we'll reach out to the organisation who usually know they've got it wrong. It's a bit like it's a bit like your point about the reform fan. They normally know, and we'll say to them, "You got this wrong. You know it. Can we help?" and offer them positive help with. Becoming more inclusive, having better EGI policies, and not just having the policies, but actually walking the walk on those and transforming the organisation. So, we have partnerships across football, corporate memberships with you know leading football clubs with the Premier League, many other organisations. We also a member organisation. We have nudging 8,000 um, members, women men men are very welcome to join women in football it's totally free um, and non-binary people and um, we're just completing a member survey uh, which will te- tell us what our members who work across the game at every level and they're in every age group what what it's really like to to work in football so I love doing that but again there came a point where um, I, I was tired I actually think every CEO has a an end date um, and I a bit like Sanjay I wanted to to put together a portfolio career and hopefully that's going okay and um, still involved with women in football but I do these other things that we've talked about the Academy auditing premiership rugby which is new and I can't wait to get started with that written a book do some lecturing probably not quite earning enough that to to survive but i'm just parking that <laughs> not worrying about that yet <laughs> worry about that later um but but kind of en- enjoying life really yeah, it's good
0: and again the, the the common theme with in fact with all all three guests is that you're enjoying the variety of the different things you do I, I, Noticed the mention of creativity, which I have a strong bond with. and I think yeah. we both yeah. enjoyed a bit of baking as well on Twitter. Oh, do you know we, Le- legal Twitter in <laughs> lockdown,
1: led by Nick DeMarco Casey. It was, it was just full of people making sourdough and making jam. It was brilliant. I so enjoyed it. It was great. I would just
3: note neither of you have brought banana bread today. It's very
1: disappointing.
0: <laughs> right. Well thank you all very much for that i'm going to return to a couple of themes um before we finish and um come back to you first tom which is dealing with the very recently controversial area of transgender rights in sport uh, and the various arguments in different sports we've seen about whether athletes who have undergone gender reassignment for example are able to self-recognize in a sport of their choice or not Where are we with that legally at the moment, Tom?
3: Yeah, so let's talk about this under three headings. First of all, who are we talking about? Second, uh, where are we at elite sports level? And third, what's happening at grassroots level? So uh, who are we talking about first? Uh, We're talking about um, a, a small minority of the population, but not that small, who are either trans, are um, intersex, or sometimes referred to as people with differences in sex development. And those people might, for example, have um, uh, both male and female genitalia. They may have chromosomal aspects of both male and female sex. Um, so people who, um, a, as a matter of uh, physiology, biology, don't um, fall uh, neatly into either uh, male or female uh, sex binary categories, and then people who um, identify as um, non-binary or non-gendered, and really it's it's the areas of trans people and people with differences in sex development that have been causing uh, controversy in uh, elite sport. But I think before we talk about exactly what's been going on there, it's important to note that this this group, trans people intersex people, non-binary, non-gendered people, are some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Um, They are people who have uh, high levels of um, uh, suicide, for example, uh, high levels of mental health issues, exclusion from access to the workforce, from services, and uh, survey after survey has shown that we are talking about a particularly vulnerable section of the population. Uh, Surveys have shown we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in the UK, perhaps at one to two percent of the population so although it's a small minority it, in absolute terms we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people even in in the UK alone. Um, so where are we on policy? They, the, the sort of starting point really is the IOC. The IOC in November 2021 published a framework on fairness inclusion and non-discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sex variations which set out 10 guiding principles, which effectively said there should be no assumption that a transgender athlete automatically has an unfair advantage in female sporting events and invites individual sports to find the right approach. Um, before that, the IOC had set a particular testosterone level for female athletes. Uh, but there's been a further update to the IOC policy, which has emphasised looking to the science and given some further um, Loss on those principles. But effectively, the the, the IOC policy has taken quite a, a, a rights-based approach, coming back to something which Jane started with, of the idea of sport and participation in sport as a human right, and said, let's really not jump to excluding people in circumstances where we have um, developing um, scientific um, research. So uh, the, I think... The area, the reason for exclusion, which is probably the least controversial, is safety. So, in contact sports, um, there there's relatively little pushback on the idea that uh, uh, where there is good evidence to show that, for example, uh, people who were who are assigned male at birth are, are competing in a female category that would create a uh, an unacceptable contact risk. That, that's that's probably the least controversial area but where that the sports that have really been generating the most controversy are are not those type of contact sports they are sports which are individual participation sports like athletics like swimming and in March 2023 one of the the biggest um, uh, sports uh, and one that's been attracting the most attention in this area world athletics announced two policies first of all a blanket ban on participation of trans female athletes who've been through male puberty and secondly a policy for athletes with differences in sex development that they will be required to suppress their testosterone levels below a certain threshold in order to satisfy eligibility and um, those policies they've been largely reflected by um, uh, at domestic levels so UK athletics have adopted those policies but it's interesting to note that in relation to the the differences in sexual development policy, UK Athletics expressed a reservation saying that they were concerned about the ethics of requiring a medical intervention of suppression of testosterone levels uh, in order merely to meet a sporting criteria. Um, so I, I think that there's going to be further litigation in relation to that, to policies around that, and I think which requires suppression or interventions of testosterone levels, and of course that applies not only to uh, people with um, uh, differences in sex development, but there are also naturally um, divergent levels of testosterone mm. in, in, in women in any event. And I think we'll see more litigation in that area. I think there is going to be more litigation in respect of... Uh, blanket trans bands and can, and challenging whether that is um proportionate whether it's been shown in particular sports to be necessary but there is at heart a sort of philosophical question which is how much do we um do we prefer this idea of a level playing field and query whether there is any such thing as a level playing field because competitors are not all equal anyway uh how much do we do we say well actually uh, the level playing field concerns have to yield to a superior interest of uh you know rights about fundamental fundamental characteristics and i think that just brings me on briefly to this point about grassroots sport because there is this debate that's happening at elite level where very small differences in performance you know can make a big difference and there's a lot of public attention but um Grassroots sport are not affected by the same considerations. But sadly, some of the debate that's happening about elite level sport is filtering down and inhibiting Trans people, people with uh, differences in sex development, participating, and I think the independent newspaper reported in March that when World Athletics announced its policy on trans and DSD participation, uh, there was a tweet to Park Run in the UK saying, uh, "At Park Run, are you now going to follow World Athletics' lead and exclude transgender women from athletics competitions?" Uh, a tweet that was seen, I think, by twenty thousand people in an hour, and of course, you know, it will be an absolute tragedy if some of these decisions at international governing body level are are stopping people from participating in community grassroots level sport where those you know fractional uh, differences that particular people's backgrounds may have in performance just Mm. just aren't relevant
0: that's a very good point i hadn't thought of before jane sanjay anything to add on on this area of debate
2: yeah i mean all the organisations I'm involved in and I know from other sports, I think I encourage mean, people to think of those along a sort of six box matrix, which p- pulls out some of the things that, that, that Tom was just talking about. So really three factors to consider, which is safety, principles of safety, principles of inclusion, principles of sporting integrity. And then how do those principles apply at the elite level and at the grassroots level? And where can you draw that line between the two? And each sport will have a very different view on that you know most team sports you know will be very very different to individual sports, but some team sports there might be some difference in things like rugby where there might be some safety elements um but again you know you when you when you go back to i suppose first principles that my the biggest the two biggest things i think i suppose the fears for me is it's it's quite difficult to have a reasoned debate in this area mm. right feelings are incredibly high, and so lots of people like me get frightened about entering the feet with the fray right because you're you you're, you're one slip of the tongue or not even a slip of the tongue away from being cancelled right mm. you just just by even expressing something new i remember i <laughs> i listened to a bbc podcast and i thought this was quite balanced and i thought i never really comment on this i'm just going to say this is quite i'm, I'm going to quote tweet it and see how long it is before i get accused of something yeah. i just put This was a really interesting, seems to be a balanced debate. It took four minutes before I was accused of being a transphobe. And this is the problem that we have at the moment is it's it's a really polarised debate, right? And it's also being used politically by the right all over the world as a wedge issue to try and divide people. And, And actually the people who suffer most, actually it's at grassroots level because we know that trans people are amongst the people who... struggle most in terms of participation and this is going to create a climate of fear and they're going to be even less active and even less healthy and then there are all the consequences for that that's my biggest fear is that we're going to lose that grassroots participation because of the the nature of the of the
1: debate Mm -hmm. I, I agree I think Sanchez put it really well
0: thank you so finally um we're going to look forward and consider some of the discrimination issues uh in the future that are likely to come up here, and in particular in relation to institutional or culture culture process-based issues. Um, We're actually recording this podcast, someone mentioned it earlier, I think Tom, two days after the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket published its very comprehensive and damning report. Uh, And it found, um, as listeners I'm sure will know, that racism, sexism, elitism, and class-based discrimination have a long history within the culture and institutions of english and welsh cricket um, for example as many as 87 percent of people with pakistani and bangladeshi heritage 82 percent of people with indian heritage and 75 percent of black respondents to the survey described experiencing discrimination in cricket within the previous five years and um, I spoke with Azim Rafiq this week. Azim was going to be a guest on this podcast, but unfortunately wasn't in England this week. And of course, you'll all know that it was thanks to Azim's brave whistleblowing that um, this inquiry has taken place. And uh, he said that the report is a stark reality of the stock of our game and also an opportunity to really take stick and cre- take stock, sorry, and create long-lasting organic solutions. Tom, in in light of the report, what do you think sports governing bodies and organisations are going to be thinking about doing differently over the coming years to deal with discrimination?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the report is, uh, it, it is damning, but it is, also very practical it makes a series of recommendations and, and I would suggest anybody who's interested in this area uh, do have a look at the at least a summary in the recommendations because uh, you know it, as, as much as it's damning it's also very positive and practical about what could be done to make things better there were a couple of things sort of from the disciplinary legal side which I thought were particularly interesting to highlight um, one was talking about how it, it's important to have uh, greater emphasis on mediation and informal resolution mechanisms beforehand as well before you get to disciplinary action and i, I think this picks up an issue key issue which is the, the the practical difficulties of reporting something if you are a member of a team a member of an organization that has happened um and for a lot of people that that's a, that's a high barrier to overcome because they don't want to um uh Take a step which is going to be perceived by others as turning on a teammate, etc., on things that are perhaps um, subject to different interpretations, etc. And there's a balance here because we have to take incidents of discrimination seriously enough. You know, I'm thinking of the the Cherif Traore uh, issue in Italy, where um, an Italian rugby player Traore was was given a banana, uh, a black Italian rugby player, at a secret centre, and um, all that happened was an apology. I think Ellis Genge tweeted and said, you know, if all that happens from this is an apology, then everything we've been doing for anti-racism and rugby is just a tick-box exercise. So, you know, we, we have to take individual incidents of discrimination seriously, but sometimes there is also a case where somebody for whatever reason, wants a resolution, wants a change of culture, wants something to be recognized, but doesn't want to immediately go into what can become a very legalized disciplinary process. So I think that's an interesting recommendation, the the, the scope for uh, informal dispute resolution mechanisms short of disciplinary proceedings. Um, The second one, which I thought was interesting, was the obligation that they're suggesting on senior people within sport to report incidents, taking the onus away from uh, victims of incidents of discrimination, and saying actually there is a leadership responsibility if you witness something to to report it so that it's not simply on those that the the obligation isn't simply there on on victims and you know it's difficult and I think perhaps senior leaders uh people within sport who who aren't from minority groups thinking about oh if I had to report some of the things I've heard um I'm not sure how comfortable I feel about doing that the even the idea of you know being under an obligation perhaps helps them to put themselves in the shoes of people who are experiencing um, discriminatory comments or acts um, and about the barriers that they have to overcome to to report them
0: Mm. Sanjay what, what do you think about the institutional lessons that we need to learn from this
2: there's so many i think first of all actually we should be victim-centered and think about the impact on victims and actually have we got appropriate victim support mechanisms in place across every sport from elite through to grassroots you would think even in something like football which is really well you know resourced that we would be good at it we're not we're terrible at it right so you know there really it should be sometimes we've had faced criticism as a charity for not providing appropriate support to victims of discrimination i have to point out to people You know, we're 0.00001% of the total, you know, sort of resources of English football. You know, you've got the FA, the Premier League, and more importantly, you've got the clubs, right? And you're the employers. You need to be supporting your players. You're the ones with the resources. It's your employment law obligation. You should be providing that support. But actually, how does that cascade right the way down to grassroots football? I think clubs are getting better at it because they recognize the importance of it. We've then to grassroots. How do you support those victims of discrimination all the way through to, gra- to to grassroots? I think what you see, what we see generally across a number of sports, it's we see it in football, we are seeing it in cricket. Is low confidence from complainants in complaints handling processes and so i think there will be some things there about how complaints are handled if you're a if you're a complainant in grassroots football you could be playing that other team before that complaint is even handled so i think sport generally is very poor at picking up good practice from outside sport so you know when i was in private practice i ran complaints handling systems you know we're running for a bank you know ppi or interest rate hedging or mis-sold bank bank loans for for cars we'd be running hundreds and thousands of complaints but managing it as a business as usual process those so those systems those people are out there with the skills but sport thinks well it's not invented here so we wouldn't engage with it so i think one of the things that might come out of this is and there's hints at it in this report and hints at it elsewhere is maybe it's time to take complaints handling across sports and out of the hands of individual governing bodies. Mm. I think there's there's then a question about regulation and what's the role of regulators. And I think Sweetwater is going to become increasingly regulated over the coming years. We've seen it with the the recommendation for the independent regulator of English football assuming this podcast doesn't come out till tomorrow what you will find tomorrow is uh, or today or yesterday depending on when this comes out uh, is the DCMS select committee saying that because it's embargoed till tonight they're saying they're adopting quite a lot of the recommendations we made for what should go into the, the remit of the independent regulator for English football around what should be done around promoting equality diversity and inclusion and into the code for football governance and i think that's going to be you know the, the heart of all these things is we need to avoid some of those complaints how do you do that well the heart of tackling discrimination and the heart of inclusion is creating a sense of belonging so that everyone feels that this sport belongs to them one of the ways in which you can do that is by tackling under representation one, one of the ways you can do that is by having mandatory rules that, and mandatory action plans that are monitored picking up on the code for sports governance that Jane drafted and saying actually how should that apply and be updated for for football including mandatory transparency reporting because transparency is disinfectant if we had a true picture of the workforce in football or cricket or the or the what fans look like we would have some ability to be able to hold those clubs to account but we just don't have that. We have no transparency, it's all completely opaque. So I think it starts with, tell us what it looks like. So, you know, At the moment, what we have is lots of anecdotes, which we, and then we find the data point that supports our theory. So we don't have data, we have anecdata, and we all just trade and compete on our anecdata. We want true, robust, holistic data, so we know truly what the state of the game is. Mm.
0: Very interesting on the, on the regulator point as well you mentioned because I, I noted one of the recommendations in the report uh, was to have an independent regulator of cricket because they said in, in, in their report one of the big problems is, and it's a problem that's been noted in football and rugby and elsewhere, where you have the same person who is responsible for um, promoting the sport and the financial side also being the regulator you often have this conflict of interest and well, they're, so they're
2: not regulators this is the point that we know we're lawyers yeah they're administrators these yeah. are these are not regulators because you know the the governing body and they they exist by consent of the members and rules get changed by the consent of the members it's not like someone can say I, and things like the premier league oh. equality standard and all those things, those are contractual and the football leadership diversity is voluntary because they had no ability to make it mandatory. They had no legal power to make that mandatory because that was the advice that we were given. They had no power to make it mandatory. The only way you make it mandatory is by having a regulator. You know. The, you, Well, you're talking about a
0: statutory regulator, which is the idea in football and maybe now also in cricket. But
2: NGBs are not regulators. They are administrators. They are golf club committees. And the members of the golf club can say, I don't like (laughs) what you're doing. I can
0: see Jane may disagree (laughs) with that. What what do you say about all this, Sarah, Jane?
1: You know, I I was the director of governance of the Football League. A part of my job was, like, sanctioning football clubs and, and other people caught by the Premier League rules. We absolutely were a regulator. I used to do it. And I, I like to think we did it sort of fairly well. And, you know, I, I will defend the model. The The Premier League rulebook, um, in some ways, is the strongest, most progressive football rulebook in the world. It doesn't... I hear you, Sanjay. There's things like, you know, diversity and leadership. It doesn't uh, it, it, go near, and maybe it should. Um, but nevertheless, I, there's a lot in there to, to be proud of. And that rulebook was... Is entirely the creation of the twenty-member clubs, um, so I don't know. T- going back to the the cricket report, I think that I think it's an excellent piece of work. Um, I commend the um, committee who have produced it. I think it's an absolute moment of truth for cricket, but I think every other sport needs to have a look at itself. Mm. I don't. I think we all perhaps know that that some of the behaviours that we've seen in this report we wouldn't be surprised if they happened in other sports so every sport needs to to take a look at itself otherwise this kind of report is coming for you and I think part of the solution is governance if you get your governance right and we Sanjay's touched on some of this diversity in in governance that'll go a long way It's also culture and a huge burden, I think, falls on sports leaders um, a huge responsibility rather to set the culture of their organization. And it has to start at the top and leaders have to understand. And this can often involve quite a bit of hard work. And I've had to go through it and maybe confront some things about me and some of them not necessarily things that I was particularly comfortable with and develop and grow from that. Um, leaders have to understand what it means to be a leader what organizational culture means and what it truly means to be inclusive mm. what it means to be inclusive and i think a lot of people in sport still don't get that one other issue about this report which i think was interesting and welcome was the way it talked on cl- about classism mm. and yeah. elitism and this is fairly new yeah, yeah in terms of something official picking this up and addressing it it's not as we all know a protected characteristic but I was really pleased to see that and I think it won't be the last time we hear about this issue not necessarily in sport but maybe in other sporting organizations maybe in wider life because I still think as a country it's a question we need to ask ourselves what what to what extent does socioeconomic background, things like accents, hinder people's life chances in this country? And I think if we asked ourselves that question honestly, we'd say yeah, they do. There's still a lot of prejudice. I, I, Accent I, prejudice.
0: Yeah.
2: And it's getting gentle. worse. I, I was it's really
0: struck worse. by and that as well. Worse. Because, yeah. you know, those of us who spend most of our time working in football don't see the class prejudice quite in the same way because it's a working class game. But outside of football, rugby, cricket, tennis, rowing, Olympic sports,
3: it's, you know, it's it's true with class prejudice, isn't it? I think the the final thought just on that leadership point is, I mean, I think we are moving into happily a phase where people are really waking up to allyship and saying, we have to make these issues everyone's problem. You know, for too long, minority groups have fought a battle with, with a little bit of support. But actually, if we all make, and if leaders in sport make these issues everyone's problem, their problem, then we'll make a lot more progress
0: okay well look that's been an excellent hour or so just over an hour thank you very much for your contributions i really enjoyed that i'm sure our listeners will have enjoyed it um thank you you've been listening to the sports law podcast with me nick DiMarco of blackstone chambers for more information you can find me on twitter and linkedin And of course, visit our website at www.blackstonechambers.com.